The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. A broadcaster, author, podcaster, blogger, musical historian, host of the ongoing history of new music. Alan Cross now checking his watch, saying, I've got to get out of here soon. (laughs) (laughs) Alan Cross has probably forgotten more about music than most of us will ever know. He's been in the business close to 40 years now, but his love of radio and music go back even farther than that. Alan has been a frequent guest on this show over the years and has been on a speaking tour in Western Canada recently with a couple of stops in these parts including Stony Plain on Sunday night, Edmonton last night, another gig tonight. Mm-hmm. And before tonight's sold-out show, he's joining us in studio. We sit for the next hour, but we'll say, if you keep looking at your watch, I'm going to kick you out sooner oh, than no, that. It, Don't make me... <laughs> I can stay here as long as you'll have me. Don't worry about it. Is, it. It's great to have you in studio, well, finally. thank you. You know, I, I've done a lot of stuff over the phone with you, but yeah. I haven't had a chance to actually be here. Now, tell us about this speaking tour that uh, you've been on. What's it all about? There is a company called Side Door Access, and what they specialize in is booking gigs between gigs for touring bands. Mm. So let's say you're going, you have a show in Calgary and you've got a couple of days off and then before a show in Edmonton. Mm. Well, if you're not playing, you're not making any mm-hmm. money. So if you talk to Side Door Access, what they can do is match you with a host so you can play a small show between Calgary and mm. Edmonton, let's mm. say. It could be anywhere. And uh, these gigs can be in a private home, they can be in a store, they can be in a a brewery, a (laughs) restaurant, uh, anything like that. So uh, a couple of years ago, I had an intern named Matt, and Matt graduated and went off to work for Side Door Access. Mm -hmm. He got in touch, and he said, well, what if we we were to do some of these Side Door gigs as speaking things? Mm. I thought, okay, let's give it a shot. So we did about a dozen in central Ontario and western New York. And then he said, well, why don't we try something out west? So I've been in Victoria, Vancouver, Kamloops, Calgary, and then Stony Plain, and then two in Edmonton. And the show tonight is uh, sold out. These have been selling out. They have been selling out, and it's really quite nice to see that kind of validation. Uh, And the people have been absolutely wonderful. They welcome you into their home or their store or their brewery or wherever it is, and they are wonderfully accommodating because if you're going to have... Uh, a strange entertainer in your place. <laughs> uh, you got to be really, mm-hmm. really deeply into that kind of hosting. And again, lovely people. So you're you're coming into town. You're sitting down. And are you are you telling stories? Is it a Q and A thing? Is it uh, hey, who's your favorite artist? Well, it's. <laughs> Yes. It's kind of a, I call it a salon, where you get a bunch of like-minded people together, and you discuss something that you're all very passionate about. In this particular case, it's about music. Mm -hmm. It's about the music industry. It's about radio, about all these things. So I don't come in with anything prepared. I come in with an attitude that says, look, I'm here to talk about whatever you want to talk about, whatever is important to you. And if at the end of the night we all leave having had a, a rich experience mm-hmm. and we've learned something fantastic mission mm-hmm. accomplished your uh, your website talks and I, I love you, when it says a little bit about me I, you called yourself a nerd to, <laughs> to begin with and you said that your love of music um, and radio started at a very young age around seven years of age I think when your mom gave you I was six six when yeah. your mom gave you a, and uh, it was my grandmother it was your grandmother she gave me a Lloyd's transistor Come on. radio. I never asked for it. Nobody told my grandmother to give it to me. But that was my introduction to this world. Because up until that point, I mean, I was only six. Mm-hmm. But up until that point, the only radio that I was aware of is was what was playing on the kitchen counter and in the car. Uh, 
and I'm from a small town in Manitoba. So we got three TV stations, one mm-hmm. of which was in French, and I had no idea that there were any other radio stations other than CGOB, yeah. core station. And uh, this radio opened up this whole world to me, not only the other radio stations in and around Winnipeg, but at night when, they, when it got really cold in the wintertime, you got to hear Chicago mm-hmm. and Denver and mm-hmm. Cincinnati and Louisville and Minneapolis and so on. And I decided at a young age that I really wanted to be part of those voices coming out of the ether. Was... Was music a constant in your house growing no. up? No, not no. at all. No. My my dad plays the guitar. Mum is completely amusical. She doesn't uh. care. Uh, but me and my sister, for some reason, are, are just huge music nerds. She's in a bunch of bands and has been all her life. And then I've been doing this uh, yeah. for 38 years. Your your story about uh, that uh, that radio and then on the cold nights being able to tune in um, stations from God knows where. Similar. So I grew up in southern Ontario, um, you know, Smith Falls, Belleville area. So on Lake Ontario, close enough on a on a on a on a cooler night, we would get uh, the stations out of New York. York. So mm-hmm. I would grow up, I think it was Yes 995 in, in New York, but um, the Toronto stations and one of the first stations I started to listen to was one of the first stations, uh, well, not one of the first stations that you worked at, but uh, one of the ones in Toronto that is now your oh, home. Well, The Edge, yes. Yeah. Now, back yeah. when you were listening to it, was, we, we referred to it by its former call letters, CFNY. And it was uh, different and uh, alternative. Mm-hmm. And uh, as, a, as a young girl listening to going, what is this music? It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, somebody's got to write a book or make a movie, a documentary about what happened with that radio station over the years. Because it has been as influential as any other mm-hmm. radio station in North America that you want to mention. It's just that we haven't documented it. And it drives me nuts when I look on Netflix and I see documentaries about other radio stations that were nowhere near mm-hmm. as influential or as long-lasting and uh, and don't even mention us. Mm-hmm. So that, that kind of bugs me. I can remember um, uh, dating a boy by the name of Tim Lawrence who actually made me a mixtape ba- and it was like CFNY. It was <laughs> based on the music that uh, that was being played on that. I, I remember gosh, I wish I wish I still had all the mixtapes. Do you still have mixtapes? I have a box of cassettes in my basement <laughs> and I believe the cassettes are one of the most hateful obsolete <laughs> formats ever and they really deserve to die. But I can't throw mine out. So I have a box in the basement, and I know that there's some old mixtapes from when I was on the radio. Mm-hmm. I know there's some really weird cassettes that you can't get anywhere a- anymore. In fact, I was just looking at a list yesterday about the most collectible cassettes. Mm-hmm. And they start at about five or $600 and go up to about $4,000. Wasn't the top one a Prince one? It was a Prince one. Yeah. yeah. You talked about uh, you know listening to these, these radio stations uh, from all over when you finally decided to go to school to mm-hmm. do what you... Uh, had to do. I know, yeah. I know, going to school well, I, to do this. Well, I got this. it wrong. Yeah. I got it wrong. I um, wanted to be a journalist, mm. a talk show host, <laughs> a newscaster, a, an anchor, a foreign correspondent, a reporter. <laughs> I didn't want to be some kind of long-haired, dope-smoking FM radio DJ. So I went to the University of Winnipeg and took all the appropriate courses like history, political science, and sociology, mm. and French, and all that kind of stuff. I got a little bit of a job on the closed-circuit radio station. Uh, my shift was 8.30 to 9.30 on Friday morning. You can imagine how many people were listening. <laughs> and it didn't really matter because it broadcast to uh, one hallway and one cafeteria. Yeah. But then I got a job in Kenora, Ontario, at a place called CJRL, mm. 1000 watt AM station in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I worked in Thunder Bay. So you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> in northwestern Ontario. Uh, and I was told that, listen, the news director is going to quit. 
when he quits in about a month, you can have his job. Meanwhile, just go on the radio and play records. Mm -hmm. So I did that for what ended up being two months, and he did quit, and I got to be the news director, and I hated it. I absolutely despised it. It was not what I thought it was going to be, and I was really, really upset because I was having this existential crisis. I'd spent all my life wanting to be in news, and now I was, and I hated it. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, I got, um, while I was looking for that particular job, I had applied to another radio station in Brandon, Manitoba, and they called me out of the blue and said, uh, you know, we kind of need somebody to work mm-hmm. evenings. So would you be interested? I had left Kenora so fast <laughs> that my landlord actually sent the sheriff after me for non-payment of rent. I love the fact that you became news director and, um, you know, years later, you ended up becoming program director, yeah. very successful one. You became boss. I was, I ascended from colleague to boss, mm-hmm. yeah, which is a difficult thing for anybody to do in any business. Did you enjoy it at the time, that, that I, transition? I mean, I think some of us think, okay, we've got to go, you know, you've got to do this step. You have to take this next step, this next step. And then we get there and we go, like, what the hell did we take that step I for? I thought I was doing the responsible thing yeah. and advancing my career. And I did learn a lot. Mm-hmm. And I did accomplish a bunch of stuff that I'm still quite proud of. But I soon, well, I decided after a while that this, you know what, I'm better at making content than mm-hmm. directing people to make content. In fact, just leave me alone. I'll take care of the content. And whatever you need, I'll deliver. Alan Cross joining me in studio uh, this afternoon. The ongoing history of new music uh, debuted in February of 1993. Yep. Since then, over 850 one-hour episodes. Um, They say that it's the longest-running music documentary in Canada, one of the longest-running in North America, if not the world. Want to know how that Mm -hmm. happened? You talk about making content. Let's talk that with Alan Cross right after this. Alan Cross, the host of the Ongoing History of New Music, joining me in studio this afternoon. We've been talking about kind of his foray into uh, into this business because you know what? He's been in the business, what, 40 years now, and um, as a music his music historian. I guess. I, I don't know. Like, how my, did that, yeah. Oh, my parents are still concerned that I'm going to move into my bedroom basement <laughs> any second now. Because they have no idea what I do. I think you're doing just fine. I guess. Yeah. Uh, 38 years, so yeah, it's been a while. It's been doing okay. So, you you know, all of this went on, all of this went on. Uh, Q107, uh, the ongoing history of, of new music, mm. the the legend that this show has become, how did it start, though? Like, you were told to do I it. I was, and I didn't want to do it. Uh, what happened was, before Chorus even existed, mm. uh, the radio station, CFMY, was sold a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. And this one particular time, management seemed that they were going to stick with it, but they were going to change the station to country. Mm. Because <laughs> the station had a lot of baggage, really did need to be cleaned up a little bit. But then they did some research and they thought, oh, these bands like Nirvana and Soundgarden and Pearl Jam, they look like they're doing okay. So, you know, what we're going to do is stick with this this mm-hmm. rock format, this alternative rock format. But we're really going to have to spend a little bit more time educating people what we're all about so we can bring them into the tent mm-hmm. and we don't be so elitist with, mm-hmm. with their music. So they looked around. They found one guy on staff with a history degree, me. <laughs> I was doing afternoons, loving it. Two to six every day. Yeah. It was perfect. It was just playing records on the radio. And they said, no, this is what you're going to do. You're going to do this uh, weekend show called The Ongoing History of New Music, to which I said, that's a terrible name. And they said, too bad, it's the name. Uh, We are going to take you off afternoons and you're going to work Saturday and Sunday morning. Mm. I said, I don't want to do that. My wife works Monday to Friday. Uh We'll never have a common day off. Too bad, that's what we're doing. And you will work on this other program Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. 
And uh, I said, well, thank you for the offer, but um, no. And they said, well, if that's the case, we'll prepare a nice little package for you, and you can find something else to mm-hmm. do. So I had just gotten married. I just built a house, and, you know, what are you going to do? So mm-hmm. I... I dove into it trying to make lemonade <laughs> and they paid attention to me for the first show and after that they left me alone uh, and eventually I just kept doing the program and all these people that had made my life miserable for quite some time um, either quit or moved on <laughs> so they're all gone and a couple of them are even dead mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so in and out you with course left course, uh, course they left they left you they left me for a little while uh, and and have come back mm-hmm. and um, when you, you know I you know I, this business is changing a lot when when you look at radio from 30 years ago so when I when I got into journalism 30 years ago again journalism I was a tell I wanted to do all the things that you wanted to do um, I wanted to be you know the foreign correspondent ended up uh, being a television news anchor and a reporter then a, a DJ downstairs and rock music radio now a talk show host you look at where it's where it's been where's it going we don't quite know yet but one of the things we really need to emphasize is that despite all the changes in technology and I can't emphasize this enough. Radio is still very powerful, very popular, very um, profitable. Uh, you have the tech people and some other groups saying, oh, you still listen to radio? Mm-hmm. Well, 90% of Canadians still listen to the radio every yeah. week. And if you are in music, the fastest way to get word out about what you do is to get a song on the radio. So let's make that very clear, that radio is not dead, it's not dying. It does, however, need to transition into the digital era in a much deeper, much more meaningful, much more interactive way. And that's easier said than done, because we just can't shut down what we're doing Mm -hmm. now and move to this new thing, whatever it is. It's kind of like flying an airplane 38,000 feet and being told to change the wings. Mm. So we're going to do it very slowly, very carefully, very methodically. And we're seeing it now with things like podcasts, with things like apps, Mm -hmm. with things like uh, on-demand access uh, on on websites. Um, AM and FM will probably at some point go away because it's not as efficient as IP delivery, which Mm -hmm. is internet protocol delivery. Uh, and and once we get into things like 5G, the new yeah. uh, cell phone protocol, that's going to change a lot of things. But we're going to have to wait for a while before a lot of this technology shakes itself out because we radio went through a period of time in the early 2000s before the dot-com bubble exploded, and we spent a lot of money on what we thought was cutting-edge technology. Mm-hmm. And remember, this is pre-YouTube. This is pre-Facebook. This is uh, pre-streaming, pre-iPhone, all those things. And it turns out that what we tried to do crashed and burned because technology was moving so fast. And not only radio, but but other industries decided that, you know, whoa, 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 we're going to hold back and we're going to let technology iterate until it begins to sort of settle down. Then we'll Mm -hmm. explore getting into it. So we've kind of figured out where technology is going with, with the Internet. We can see how behaviors, listener behaviors, consumer behaviors have shooken out. And now we're just trying to figure out, okay, how do we adapt to this in a slow, steady, methodical, uh, non-volatile way? Do you miss... Um, how, how often are you on every the day. radio every day now? Every day. Every day. Yep. Is there anything that you miss doing? I... You know, back in the day, geez, this is going to make me sound 
uh, really kind of old-fashioned. I, I was in my hotel room yesterday, and I was watching American Graffiti. <laughs> and there's the scene at the end where saying where Richard Dreyfus hunts down Wolfman Jack, mm-hmm. or what he mm-hmm. thought was Wolfman Jack. It turns out not to be Wolfman mm-hmm. Jack, but is Wolfman Jack. And uh, just the the way it used to be uh, in in you know before there were. Uh, streaming music services and and how powerful uh, radio would be with young people just driving around. I mean, it still is, Mm -hmm. but it was the only game in town Mm -hmm. because, you know, back then, you didn't have cassette players, Mm -hmm. you didn't have CD players, you didn't have aux inputs which you plugged your phone into. And I really enjoyed going back and looking at those days when um, a powerful radio station could move mountains. Mm. Uh, in ways that we don't see today, and that's not any fault of radio. It's just that radio is the is is not the only game in town anymore. There's so much more um, that's com- that's that's fighting for our uh, entertainment minutes, yeah. our attention. What do you do when you're not doing radio? When you're not what? doing? Yeah, come on, come on. This, no, no, this, no, is, this no. is a lifestyle. You know that. You're always doing radio. You're always looking for something to talk about. You're always, always. yeah, always looking to to analyze something. How can I turn this into uh, something I can talk about on uh, on Friday morning or Friday afternoon? I, it's it's you can't turn it off, which is why when a lot of people leave the business, they have a very hard time assimilating into <laughs> civilian life, because when you open a microphone. And I think you'll agree with me on this. When you open a microphone to do this job well, you have to give a little piece of your soul every single time. Otherwise, you come across as inauthentic. You have to give some of yourself for every broadcast you do. And when they take away your microphone, you realize that, oh, I've got a, got a bunch of holes in my soul. <laughs> I was saying uh, to, to, to Chedville the other day, I said that the one thing that I'm always amazed at is well, the power of radio, but is is the the intimacy of it what what people will share um whether it's a whether it's a great story whether it's a sad story whether it is the worst day of their life or their best day of their life but being able and willing to share it uh with a host and all of everybody else out there listen there's nothing like it what we're doing right now is the original social media yeah. <laughs> you know, talk radio is the original social media where mm. you could get together and have a conversation with strangers and people that you thought you knew, the people on the radio, mm-hmm. and the kind of stuff that comes out from those conversations or the kind of enlightenment and enrichment that comes from just listening to those conversations is fantastic. You can't get that anywhere else. Alan Cross is one of the biggest names in Canadian music journalism. When we come back, I'm going to ask him to share some stories. We, we've been talking about radio in the industry, and I, I would love to hear some stories. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I got a few. We'll do that right after this. Alan Cross in studio this afternoon. Of course, the host of the ongoing history of new music. I could, you know, author, podcaster, blogger, musical historian, you name it. Someone, someone in the music business dies, we call Alan. <laughs> <laughs> Obituary man, as my wife calls me. What is your, uh, yeah, what does a day like that look like? It's, it's, ni- it's, a, it's a nightmare because uh, for whatever reason, people call from all over the country, mm. whether it be TV or radio mm-hmm. or print, call me for comments or mm-hmm. call me for context or call me for some kind of uh, explanation about why this artist is, is particularly important. And it doesn't matter who it is. I was in New York one time and Whitney Houston died. Mm. So I did a whole bunch of Whitney Houston. Uh, David Bowie, the call started at 3 in the morning. Um, Gord Downey uh, mm. started at 8.30 in the morning. 
So it just comes with the territory. Uh, the Tragically Hip had to been one of the most quirkiest interviews I've ever done in my life. It was it was a difficult uh, interview. Ward was an artist. Yeah. <laughs> and the way it would work, I don't know how about with you, but with me, it was like you'd ask a question. Mm-hmm. And there'd be this long silence, mm. and you'd figure that Gord was ignoring you, but he was just processing the question, and then would answer you in his own good time. Yeah, not I, not great radio. <laughs> no, it, it wasn't. It wasn't great radio. And you just yeah, I can remember. You know, it was a television interview back in the day. Thinking at the time, going back to the station, going, I don't think I got anything out of that interview mm-hmm. whatsoever. I was telling you off the air about uh, uh, about Garth Brooks and, and meeting Garth Brooks and how I tend not to get too uh, all Twitter pated about uh, too many um, people that I meet and did some a little bit of entertainment reporting a long, long time ago in a different part of my career. You had mentioned that uh, David Bowie was yours. Yes, he was. I got an opportunity to talk to him in 1990 when he came through Toronto with his Tin Machine project. Mm. And I was asked, would you like to spend half an hour with David Bowie? And absolutely. Because, you know, usually I'm pretty calm Mm -hmm. when it comes to these sort of things. But when it comes to David Bowie, I mean, it's David Bowie, right? So I end up going to this Masonic temple in downtown Toronto (laughs) that had been turned into a concert venue. There were two chairs in a big room in the basement. I was told, this is your chair. That's David's chair. And as I'm putting together, you know, uh, setting up my recording gear, uh, a hand gets thrust in, in my face, and I look up, and he goes, "Hi, I'm David." Yeah, well, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so we we sat and we talked for uh, half an hour. Um, he looked me in the eye. He, uh, I had his undivided attention uh, as far as I can remember. He was answering my questions. Uh-huh. I don't remember a single thing he said because I was so so completely starstruck by the whole thing. At the end, he signed my album, shook my hand again, and left. And I looked down and I realized that I had forgotten to unpause my cassette player. <gasps> yes. No way. I, I had thirty minutes of Bowie to myself. And I have no record of it. None. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You um, do that once. <laughs> yeah, you, oh, yeah, once. Um, was there anyone, okay, so Bowie aside, that really blew your skirt up? That you thought, okay, this this was amazing? Uh, Bono is always yeah, is Bono's it? the easiest. Because here's how you start an interview with Bono. Hi. Yeah, tell me about yourself. <laughs> and he'll go on for 45 minutes without taking a breath. There has never been a case where I've interviewed Bono where somebody from his entourage hasn't come in, grabbed him by the arm, and physically removed him from the uh. chair to take him to the next interview he has to uh-huh. do. And as he's being dragged out the door, he's still talking. <laughs> so he's great. I, I really like him. The, I also did something uh, 2011, and I was here uh, in Edmonton. Uh, I did a uh, stage production with William Shatner. <laughs> Has he blocked you on on no, Twitter like no. everybody else? Me and no, Bill okay. are still friends. Okay, good. I did a long story, but yeah, <laughs> me and me and Bill are still friends. Uh, and one of the, it was it was a it was a production called How Time Flies. Yeah. And the deal was that I would be his onstage foil. I would be like Ron McLean. He would mm-hmm. be like Don Cherry. And we would have this back and forth, and he would lead into various stories or various uh, visuals and films and all that kind of stuff. And he said at the, the first show, I said, you know what? I would like to sing a song at the end of the show. And my f- reaction was, are you sure? <laughs> and he says, yes, I think people would like to hear me sing a song. Well, Kirk. Okay, you're Captain Kirk, all right. So uh, he says, well, what should we sing? 
We? No, what should I sing? Oh, right. Uh, well, you're in Canada. It's November. Why don't you do Stompin' Tom's The Hockey Song? Mm. Great idea. So we get him the lyrics, and uh, we start rehearsing with it, and he can't get it right. He just can't figure it out. So he turns to me. He says, what am I doing wrong? I said, okay, Bill, here's what you need to do. You need to do blah, 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 blah. And about 30 seconds into this, I realize that I'm trying to teach William Shatner how to sing. <laughs> and it was one of those weird moments where you go, how did I ever get into this particular position? Well, and I wanted to ask, did you ever think that, you know, 40 years ago or oh, however long no. ago, that this would be it? I, I mean, that... No, 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 this no. This is what you'd be doing. No, no. There's no way in hell I thought I'd be doing this. I thought that I would be, I would have moved on to management by this time mm. or doing something completely different, but no, not at all. And that's that's fine with me because I don't think, you know, I'm, after 38 years that I have any more portable skills. <laughs> that's why I can do this and very little else. I think we can all maybe, um, you know, pull back in the files a little bit and think of someone that was maybe a little bit more difficult or wasn't as... Um, easy to get along with in an interview that we maybe thought. For mine, it was Marty Stewart. Who was yours? Uh, probably Leonard Cohen. Oh. 1987, Leonard Cohen made a comeback after a number of years with an album called I'm Your Man. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, they decided that they were going to market this record as an alternative album, mm. which was a bit weird because he was 54, 55 at the time. And, uh, we had a policy that if an artist dropped in to the radio station, we would drop everything that we were doing and interview him on the air. Now, I was on the air at when Leonard Cohen came in, and I knew a little bit about him. I knew that he was a poet, that he did a couple of songs that were hits in the 60s. Uh, that was about all I knew. You know, I'm a dumb kid. I'm 23 or 24 years old. And he comes in, sits down in the studio, just before we're about to go live, and he's dressed in black, of mm -hmm. course. He's got the, you know, the severe haircut, and he's smoking these really awful French cigarettes that <laughs> smell terrible. So he comes in, and I can sense that he's, he's very stiff and formal. And I thought, well, you know, why don't we, why don't we try and break the ice, mm. lighten the mood a little bit? So we get on the air and says, welcome to Leonard Cohen. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Uh, would you mind if I called you Lenny? <laughs> and there was this long pause as he took a very deep drag on his gatane <laughs> and then very pointedly blew the smoke in my face and said, don't. <laughs> <laughs> love it, love it. And, and the rest of the interview continued uh, quite... Uh, it was short. It was chill. Yes. <laughs> very it was, cool. Yes. And it was only afterwards that I realized that people were studying his work at the PhD level. Yeah. <laughs> and that I should have probably been a little bit more respectful. Are you doing a lot of interviewing still? Yes. Yeah. Quite a bit. Oh, no, no. I, yes. I do. Uh, um, I have one coming up on Friday. Uh, Kirk Hammett of Metallica mm. is a huge collector of memorabilia from old horror and science fiction mm -hmm. movies. And his collection is so fantastic that it's currently on display until January 5th at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. And on Friday, he and Robert, the bass player from Metallica, are in town as part of this. And they're going to play a special gig as, uh, at a music store in, in northern Toronto called uh, Cosmo Music. Mm. And uh, they call their band The Wedding Band. <laughs> and they're just going to come in they're going to goof around. And... I'm going to go there. I, I've, I've talked to Kirk a number of times yeah. over the years, and it turns out, here's a weird thing, I've turned out, turns out that he and I have uh, a love for the same kind of dog. Uh, 
which are English bull terriers. Mm -hmm. He had two. I have two right now, and his two are, are gone. And I told him when I went to interview uh, him in Nashville earlier this year that uh, when you come to Toronto, I, I think you need a dog. And he goes, absolutely. So I'm going to this half Metallica show with Schmooze, the older of the two English bull terriers, just so Kirk Hammett of Metallica has something to pet. Awesome. Yes. Alan, do people do do these stars do do bands come to you Sometimes. now? Or, or is it still? Do you still go to them? Uh, well, just, I yeah. go. I, I'll, you know, I always go to them because it's much easier to schedule going to them than them coming yeah. to me. So I will get opportunities. I'll get a call from a manager or an agent or uh, a record label. Mm -hmm. We'll say, would you like to come and do this? Uh, so and so is available for a phone call, a Skype call, or uh, an in-person call. Would you like to do it? And I try never, ever, ever to turn things down. I did Brian Adams a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Getty Lee not too long ago. I did Getty Lee a little while back. He's I've, got that new book out. Here is an interesting thing about that book. You know, we were doing this this Cosmo Music Fest in in Toronto, and Getty was going to be signing copies of his book. Mm. So I was standing by the staff entrance, next to where the big rock star SUVs pull up, and they disgorge the stars, and they run into the staff mm -hmm. entrance, avoiding all the crowds. So the SUV pulls up right next to me, about five feet away, and I look through the windshield, oh, and there's Getty to come and do his uh, his book signing. And then out of the driver's side door pops Dave Grohl. Oh, gee. And I, uh, Dave, he goes, can't talk, got to pee, runs into the into the <laughs> into the um, into the building. And apparently, he was there doing some sort of documentary on some non-Foo Fighters thing. I don't know what it mm -hmm. was, but he was up vis visiting Getty, and Getty says, you know, I got to do this book signing. And Dave says, fine, I'll drive you. So he did. And there's a, a shot on Instagram of them at a stoplight on a Saturday afternoon in Toronto, and there's Dave in the passenger in the driver's seat, Getty in the pass in the passenger seat, and the person looking like, really? Uh, this is this really happening? And it, uh, so I asked Getty about this a couple yeah. of days later. I says, "Dave was with you." He says, "Yeah." And he was driving you around town? And Getty says, yeah, he was my Fuber driver. Yeah. <laughs> Alan Cross in studio this afternoon. Another quick break before we wrap things up with him. When we come back, uh, the one interview he would still love to get. We'll find out who it is after this. Alan Cross, we have the last few minutes. He's in town tonight as part of this uh, Western Canada speaking tour. The show tonight, though, is sold out. It is, but if you would like to have me back, go to sidedooraccess.com and see if I'll come to your house. <laughs> there you go. Hey, that'd be great. You know, just sit around uh, sit around the bar, drink some bourbon. Yeah, I, I, I did... Uh I did that last night, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Very nice couple. Invited me into their home. There's about 30 people there. We had a really good time. Very cool. I asked before the break who was, uh, you know, maybe the, the, the person on the list who you haven't had a chance to interview yet. You call it the holes in the resume. Yeah, I need a Rolling Stone. You don't. Ha you don't have a Rolling Stone. I don't. I would even talk to Charlie at this point. <laughs> How many times have the Rolling Stones been in Toronto? A thousand and I've never had an opportunity. Never. Have they uh, been in the building? Uh, they didn't, but not when I have been. Yeah, I know. It's That's a bad one. I've never interviewed anybody from Pink Floyd. I had an mm. opportunity to talk to Nick Mason, the drummer. Okay. That never happened. Uh, the closest I ever got to David Gilmore was I went to a show where he was playing, and I ended up sitting next to Bob Ezrin, mm. the Canadian producer who produced The Wall. Yes. And David Gilmore is playing Comfortably Numb at the end of the show, and there are people around us singing that great guitar solo at the end of that show, and I'm standing next to the guy that was in the studio when that was being made, and it was just the coolest feeling. You have a story about Paul McCartney. I do. So Paul McCartney has been a Beatle since he was 15 years mm -hmm. old. He is the most covered musician next to uh, with John Lennon of all time 
uh, he has never not been a Beatle, as far as we're concerned. And how many questions do you think he's been asked in interviews over the decades? I mean, yeah. what could you possibly ask Paul McCartney that he has yeah. never mm-hmm. been asked before? Mm-hmm. So he was in Toronto, and uh, he doesn't do one-on-one interviews on tour. He does press conferences. Mm-hmm. So I wangled my way into the press conference, and I talked to the guy running it, and I said, can I be one of the four people to ask a question? He goes, yes. <laughs> so I'm agonizing about what I'm going to ask him. And it finally hit me. Mm. So this was just after he had married Heather Mills. Mm-hmm. So they point to me, Alan, your question. Uh, Paul, hello. Hi. Uh, congratulations on your marriage to Heather. Oh, thank you very much. Um, how was the reception? Oh, the reception was lovely. We had Sting and George and Ringo <laughs> were there and Eric was there. Eric Clapton? Yes, Eric Clapton was there. And, uh, named all these other names. And I go, oh, okay. Um, at the reception, did you have a DJ or a live band? <laughs> and he said, he looked at me like I was crazy, and he said, a live band, of course. I said, oh, do you think they were intimidated? <laughs> and he looked at me again like it was nuts, and he goes, no, why should they be? And with that, the press conference broke up. That was it? <laughs> that was, that it. was it. I stumped Paul McCartney. Beautiful. And and I will go to my grave knowing that I asked Paul McCartney a question that he had never been asked before. Alan Cross, do you think that there are artists out there right now hmm. that will be talking about 40, 50 years down the road like we are talking about Paul McCartney right no, now? No, I don't think so. And I think that's uh, um, a function of technology because we are cycling through so much music so quickly that in the 21st century, we've done a terrible job of creating new superstars. Most of the huge superstars that we have right now are products of the 20th century. And you can talk about anybody from McCartney and Garth Brooks and U2 and Pearl Jam and so on and so on. Um, We haven't really created anybody that's going to have that length of longevity yet, as far as we can tell right Uh now. We might be talking, well, you know, even pop stars like Drake and and Bieber and uh, The Weeknd, I mean, how, Uh you know, that pop stars tend to be fairly evanescent in terms of their... Uh, of their careers, so I really don't know. One of the things that we'll talk about at the event tonight is is how technology is going to affect music moving forward, and uh, it's really, really cool, but there are some things that we need to watch for that are kind of insidious, and it will affect music in the future. Sidedooraccess.com, uh, a journal of musical things.com, Alan Cross, the ongoing history of new music. Thank you for sharing the last hour with me. Very welcome.